This is episode 134 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're finishing Men's Roundup 2014 Endurance with Paul Tripp. This is session four, Sunday morning. Well, it has been wonderful to be with you this weekend. It's been great having conversation with many of you. Thank you for your uh, kind comments. I just get up here and say all the things that I desperately need to hear. Uh, I'm the first audience, and I figure if I need to hear them, you need to hear them as well. I want to give a few things away and and remind you that uh, our table is just going to be open for about a, a half hour afterwards. We have to hit a plane, fly to Philadelphia. Uh, get home 6 o'clock in the morning on, sun, on Monday and fly out on Tuesday morning to the next conference, so pray for us. Um, I'm going to spend Monday with my dear wife, and then we're off again. If you want to pray for us, pray for a ministry wisdom, but pray this one thing for me. Pray that I would live what I teach. Uh, I'm, I'm deeply aware that it's a lot easier to teach it than it is to live it. I am a work in progress. God's not done with me yet. And so if you think of Paul Tripp, uh, pray that for me. If you're committed to a life of ministry, and you should be if you're God's child, whether that's formal pastoral ministry or whatever ministry in Christ's kingdom you do, This is what this book is about, Dangerous Calling. Some of you are familiar with it. It speaks to the unique temptations of of ministry. Very, very practical. I would encourage you to use this material for your ministry uh, community. It really gets at the real heart struggle of, of ministry. Are you ready? One of the things I think that happens to us is we say we believe in things, but we don't actually live like we believe in them. And one of the places where I think that is true is the biblical doctrine of eternity. We believe that this is not all that there is. Yet we live with the drivenness and frenetic lifestyle and anxiety and worry as if this moment was all that there is. Listen, this moment isn't a destination. This moment is a preparation for a final destination. Welcome to the Christian life. This book is called Forever, Why You Can't Live Without It. It's not a book about eternity. It's a book about what it looks like to actually live at street level in your marriage, in your family, in your work, as if you really believed in eternity. Thank <laughs> you. 
I walked by them this morning, and they begged in such a sad, unmanly way. It got to the level of being so pathetic that I just had to do that, so... Well, we're going to, I want to show you a video on Psalm 27. I've begun, I've begun to write uh, devotionals on the Psalms. I love the, the rawness of the life of faith of the Psalms. Now, I have a complaint with the way that we use the Psalms. We often treat the Psalms like spiritual fast food. You burn through a Psalm real quickly, you say a quick prayer, and you've had your ticket punched for heaven that day. Uh, the Psalms are meant to be banquet meals that you, that you savor. They're, they're rich with fine spiritual food. And, and so uh, this devotional on Psalm 27 called Shelter in the Time of Storm is actually 52 meditations on Psalm 27 that allows that, the truths of that Psalm to get up inside of you and begin to transform the way you think about yourself and you think about God and you think about life and you think about what's important. Uh, psalm 27, as we talked about last night, is a psalm of trouble, but it's rich with the revelation of God's amazing grace. Uh, here's a little video that talks about shelter in the time of storm. I think that there probably is in the Church of Jesus Christ more fear, more anxiety, more nervousness, more disappointment, more discouragement than we are willing to talk about. I think it's the dirty secret of the church. We're like everybody else. We, we sing these beautiful hymns but we're putting our trust in things that will fail us. The created physical world was not designed to be a spiritual refuge. So when I run there, I don't actually get refuge. This, I think this is important. What I actually get is more trouble because I'm asking that person or that food or that possession to do something it can't do for me. And that always ends in greater trouble. I actually think that much of the wrong responses we have could be solved just by remembering I'm never alone in my trouble. That God inhabits my trouble. He's in the middle of my trouble. God is always calling us to acts of faith. He's drawing commitment out of us. He says, seek me, come to me, trust me, follow me, obey me. All of those is because God is not just trying to deliver things to me. And what he's doing is he's working to change me, not just the circumstances in my life. And I think we do turn God into a delivery system. He wants us. I would love somehow, some way, 
something that I've written to give people back their awe of God. Tragically, God's become a deliverer of good things. He's become a character in neat stories. He's become a buddy. But he hasn't become this thing that just stuns me and leaves me breathless and leaves me excited. And I say, I don't care what I'm facing. My life is worth it because I've come to know God. Well, here's what our journey has been like. We first talked about what this thing, endurance, is, and I want to remind you again, endurance is more than toughing it out. Endurance is more than hanging in there. Endurance is more than flexing your manly muscles and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick it out. Endurance is living faithfully and patiently in the place where God has put you, the gospel that you say you believe. Let me say that again. Endurance is living faithfully and patiently in the place where God has put you, the gospel that you say you believe. If you're going to do that, first, you have to know where God has put you. You have to understand what the Bible says about the hardship of life between the already and the not yet. God never gets a wrong address. He puts you exactly where He wants you to be. And if you don't understand what life is like between the already and the not yet, you're going to live with unrealistic expectations and you're going to live naive to temptation. You secondly have to know what God is doing. God is not working on delivering to you your personal definition of happiness. Sorry, he's not. Get a gospel grip. He's not. And as long as you think that, you're going to be very confused about God, and you're going to begin to doubt his goodness. This is the one thing he's working on. He's working to take people who are now justified by his grace, but are yet people of unfaith, and craft them into being men of faith. That's a miraculous work of grace. You could never do that yourself. You could never work that up in yourself. Listen, sanctification is a work of grace. Enough of saying that Jesus saves me and it's up to me. Forget it. If it's up to me, I'm cooked. It's grace from beginning to end. It's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Third, you have to know your identity. Sadly, there are men in this room, you're still shopping for your identity horizontally. You are actually every day looking for what you've already been given in Christ. Isn't that sad? So you hope you find identity in your job, or hope you find identity in your marriage, or hope you find identity in your children. Listen, trying to get an identity out of a child is a miserable thing. In case you don't realize it, your child isn't committed to your identity. 
I was home one weekend. I was so happy that I was actually home on a weekend. And, and it was the fall, and I thought, I can watch college football. I, I'm, I'm down in the fan room. I'm, I'm just getting ready to sit down there, something cool to drink, some kind of snack. And out of the bathroom comes my then 16-year-old son, and he has unbelievably bright green hair. Now, this is the days, this was the, before the days that those temporary dyes, this was permanent stuff. Now, you don't yet know what his hair looked like. He had first used a substance on his hair that had stripped it of all color, so it had the translucency of the hair of a polar bear. And then he had fixed this dye. You think the name of the dye would have been a clue. It was called Manic Panic. <laughs> and the, the, the result was, it looks like on his head, was shredded saran wrap. Plastic wrap. He looked like one of those cheap tabletop Christmas trees. <laughs> he stood over me and he said, what do you think? What I was thinking is, get the ornaments, Christmas tree boy. The instructions on the dye said you should put Vaseline around the edges here so that didn't get dyed. The tips of his ears were dyed shocking green. <laughs> now I'm sitting there. The reason I was home that weekend is I was the final speaker at a marriage and family weekend at a very prominent church in Philadelphia and they were so excited that I could bring my whole family with me. And it was going to be Luella and uh, Ethan and Nicole and Darnay and Christmas Tree Boy with the extension cord. <laughs> he woke up the next morning, this is just great, and had a, oh God, what have I done moment, and proceeded to shave his head, <laughs> only to discover... His scalp was green. What's that, the eight ball? I told him to carry a white, white ball on a stick and no one would notice. And he wore a hat for three months. Your children aren't committed to your identity. That's a miserable place to find your identity. You have to understand that your identity is in Christ. That this, this amazing thing that all that the Bible reveals that God is, by grace, He is for you. Isn't that amazing? You think of all of His power, all of His wisdom, all of His faithfulness and patience and mercy is all unleashed on you by grace. That's who you are. Good theology doesn't just define who God is. Good theology redefines who you are as His children. Now, here's the last thing. If you're going to endure, you better earn, learn early 
Are you listening to me? That endurance is a community project. Endurance is a community project. You were not wired by creation or by grace to endure alone. Endurance is a deeply relational, deeply community thing. And I want to say this because I think it's true. I would imagine that most men in this room live virtually unknown. Oh, I don't mean that people don't know your name or don't know some of your family or don't know details about you. But the interior of your life, the dynamics of your own spiritual struggle, no one really knows you. What a tragedy. Hundreds of thousands of Christian men live virtually unknown. I would ask you today, who knows you? Who really knows you? Who knows the interior of the struggle of your heart? Men, hear what I'm about to say. If you don't have a name on your mind right now, you may be a Christian, but you're not living a biblical lifestyle. It's wrong. And it'll never work. I was a very angry man. I didn't know I was an angry man. My wife knew I was angry. My children knew I was angry, but I didn't know I was an angry man. I was a pastor. I was in the middle of destroying my life and my ministry, and I didn't know it. If you had come to me and you had characterized me as an, as an angry man, I would have been hurt by that. I, I didn't see myself in that category at all. Luella was very, very faithful in, in just amazingly godly ways of of bringing that anger before me. And when she would do that, I would wrap my robes of righteousness around me and tell her what a great husband she had. I would tell her again and again that I thought her problem was discontent, and I would pray for her. That helped her. That's a lie. There was one moment where I got on a roll. I'm a, I'm a domestic sort of man. I don't mind doing things around the house. I do all of the cooking in our, in our family. I like to say that's because I'm a servant. It's not just it's because I like to cook. Uh, and I was, I was on a roll as she's bringing the anger before me, and I said these deeply humble words. 95% of the women in our church would love to be married to a man like me. Luella very quickly informed me she was in the 5%. It was a moral disaster. I was on a weekend much like this with my brother Ted. And as the weekend was over, we were traveling up the northeast extension of the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and Ted said to me, Paul, we ought to make what we learned this weekend practical to us. Why don't you start? 
And what Ted did next, I will thank God for 10 million years into eternity. He didn't make a statement. He began to ask me questions. And as Ted was asking me those questions, it was like God was ripping down curtains. And I was seeing myself and hearing myself with accuracy in the first time in many, many years. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It was so far from the concept I had of myself that it was hard for me to imagine that that man I was looking in on was me, but it was. I was broken and grieved. Praise God, praise God, praise God for the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. Don't ever resist that ministry. That ministry is your, mor is your moral hope. I couldn't wait to get home. And I'm a man with a lively sense of humor. I often enter the house humorously, and I came in that night very seriously. Well, I knew that something was up. I said, dear, it would be great if you could sit down and just talk with me. I, I need to talk with you. I said to her, I know for many years you have tried to talk to me about my anger, and I've been unwilling to listen, and I've been unwilling to hear. And I can honestly say tonight for the first time, I want to hear what you have to say to me. Please talk to me. I'll never forget what happened next. Luella began to cry. She told me that she loved me, which itself was an act of incredible grace. And then she talked for two hours. And in that two hours, God began a process of the radical undoing and rebuilding of the heart of this man. Now, the operative word was process. I wasn't zapped by lightning. But by God's grace, I now was a, was a man with an open heart and open eyes and open ears. The next several months were, were deeply painful months because I saw that anger everywhere I looked. Sometimes it was a burden so heavy I felt like I couldn't breathe. But I want you to hear me. That pain was the pain of grace. Because God was making that anger like vomit in my mouth so I would never go back there again. Praise God. Never forget, months, months down the road, coming down the steps from our upstairs down to the living room, seeing Luella in the living room, looking at her from behind and thinking, I couldn't remember the last time I'd felt that old ugly anger toward her. Now, now, I'm not saying I had risen to a level of sanctification that a moment of irritation would be impossible for me, but that life-dominating anger was gone. Praise God. Praise God. And I went up behind her, and I grabbed her shoulders like this, and she looked up at me like this, if you would, and someone would come from behind. And I said, you know, I'm not angry at you anymore. And we both began to laugh and cry at the same time at the beauty of what God had done. I would have never gotten there by myself. Never, ever, ever, ever. I needed the long-term faithful ministry of Luella, and I needed that acute moment of ministry of my brother Ted. Because I would have never, ever been able to see myself with the kind of accuracy that was necessary. 
I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. I can't think of any other passage that, that more lays out the, the depth of the necessity to understand that your endurance, the continuation of your faithful, patient walk with God, living out the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a community project in this passage. This is a shocking passage. It's meant to rock you. It's meant to alert you. It's meant to make you uncomfortable. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Who's he talking about? Who's he talking about? Christians. Remember, everything this passage is discussing is addressed to believers. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, this passage gives us a warning and a call. And you only really fully get the call if you fully understand the warning. And the warning in this passage is a progressive warning. It's, it's very important to understand. I want you to look up here because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to physically display this warning for you. Here it is. See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving turning away hardened heart. There's steps in this very dangerous spiritual process that the writer of Hebrews is warning us against. Now it starts with this. See to it that none of you has a sinful heart. It means that somewhere in my Christian experience, I begin to let down my guard and I begin to let patterns of sin into my life. Things that I wouldn't have let into my life in those early days of my conversion. In the early days of my conversion where all pores were open and heart was open and eyes and ears were open where I was... I was so focused on living in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. But as, listen, as familiarity begins to make me not as in awe of the grace I've received, because I'm now used to it, I begin to let patterns of sin into my life. Maybe that's an attitude. Maybe that's debt. Maybe that's lust. Maybe that's pride. Maybe that's anger. I let things into my life that are inconsistent with what I say I believe. I'm going to say this. Everyone in this room does that. Everyone. We all do that. Now, when that happens to a believer, something else happens. Your conscience will bother you. Because by grace, 
the heart of stone has been taken out of you, a heart of flesh has been, been replaced, and your, your, your heart is susceptible to conviction. It's susceptible to the, to the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so when your conscience bothers you, stay with me here, you only have one of two choices. You will either immediately confess that that is sin and joyfully place yourself once again under the justifying mercies of Christ and receive His forgiveness, or, watch this, you will erect some sense of self-justification that makes that wrong acceptable to your conscience. We're so good at doing that. Let me hurt your feelings for a moment. Everyone in this room, including this man, is a very skilled self-swindler. Nobody swindles you more than you swindle you. And so a man who's at the mall and lusting will tell himself, that wasn't lust, I'm just a man who enjoys beauty. A man who's on an ugly quest for power, being a divisive man, will say, I'm not on a quest for power, I'm just exercising God-given leadership gifts. A person who's just destroyed the reputation of another person on an extended moment of gossip on the cell phone will say it wasn't gossip, it was just a very extended detailed prayer request, we should pray. A man who's just yelled at his, his children in violent, ugly, self-focused uh, parental anger will say to himself as he walks down the hallway, that wasn't anger. I was just speaking like one of God's prophets. We have all these ways of relieving our consciousness, and here's what we're doing. We work very hard to convince ourselves that what God says is wrong isn't so bad after all. That maybe it's not so bad. Maybe we're not so bad. Maybe we're not so needy. Listen, the minute you deny sin, you devalue grace. Because grace is only exciting to sinners. You see, grace, grace takes sin very seriously. Listen, if wrong wasn't wrong, there would be no need for grace. I would ask you, be honest, scan the last few months of your life. Where are you taking yourself off the hook? Where are you swindling you? Where do you walk down the hallway and say, yeah, I spoke nastily to her, but if she weren't always so demanding, I would... You see what you've done? That's called self-justification. It's all a lie. I had a mom say to me, oh yeah, Paul, I know that the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath and a harsh word stirs up anger, but whoever wrote that didn't have these children. Or you're watching something on, on television. You've saved it on your DV, DVR. That's, that's moral filth. 
And you say something like this, I'm, I think I'm at the level of the maturity to handle this. Who are you kidding? You're doing something you have no business doing. And you, you have to then work to ease your conscience. Listen, if you're working to ease your conscience, you're not enduring. You're trying to dull this beautiful ministry of the Holy Spirit. You're trying to escape the pressure of the Holy Spirit. That's resisting grace. That's what you're doing. Now, what is that called? That's called unbelief. Because what I'm now doing is I'm backing away from the clear diagnostic of the Word of God, the clear message of the Word of God. That's unbelief. We, we, try, we, we uh, name unbelief as walking away from the faith or doubting the truth of the Scripture. Listen, I think there's a lot of unbelief in our lives where we step away from what the Bible says about us and we tell ourselves it's not true. At least of me, it's not. That's unbelief. Now, what that leads to, stay with me, is always further falling away. Because the Word of God is meant to be your moral anchor. And when you're anchored to the truths of the Word of God, holding fast unto the grace of God, it keeps you. The minute you get used to playing monkey games with the Word of God, convincing yourself you're not so bad after all, that means you're going to do that in other areas. And what ultimately happens, this is shocking that it could ever happen to a believer, is you end up with a hard heart. He's talking believers here. That what once bothered you doesn't bother you anymore. Listen, there are guys in this room, there are things that you're doing right now that once would have hurt your conscience that doesn't bother you anymore. You can do those things actually with peace of conscience. What a tragedy. You know what the tragedy in my life was? My anger didn't bother me anymore. I didn't care that I was angry. I was okay with my anger. What a tragedy. What about you? What now, men be honest, sits in your life? It's a regular pattern of who you are, what you do, what you say, what you think, that is inconsistent with the gospel that you say you believe. Where right now are you working to relieve a guilty conscience by telling yourself that what you're doing is less than sin? It's not really sin, sin. Sin. It's really, really not that. I would say stupid things to the world like, I'm not angry with you, I'm just a man with strong opinions. I'm just quick on my feet. I just come from a family where we talk loud. 
I said the dumbest things. I will confess to not only being a sinner, but being a real dumb one. Anything I could do to, to relieve the conscience until it got to the point where years down the road, my anger didn't bother me anymore. What a tragedy. Now hear what I'm about to say. God, in the glory of His condescending love and grace, has provided help for what I'm talking about. He's provided help for you. Here's what the gospel teaches. That the biggest danger morally to me in all of the world... Are you ready for this? The biggest danger to me morally in all of the world exists inside of me, not outside of me. And so I need to be rescued from me. I don't so much need to be rescued from Luella or my children. Yes, they're imperfect people. Yes, they're in process too. But I need to be rescued from me. Listen, we're not medieval monastics. What was the... What was the theology of the medieval monastery? Well, it's an evil world out there. The, the way to live a righteous life is to separate yourself from the evil world, build a big wall, and everything will go well. What happened to the monasteries? You know the history. They repeated all the evils of the outside society. You know what the big, you know what the big mistake of monasteries were? They let people in them. That's right. And what, what did people bring? They brought the evil of their hearts. Tell yourself every morning, I need to be rescued from me. Grace works to rescue me from me. In fact, I want to challenge you to do this. I do this every morning. I try to remember this before I get out of bed. I try to, I try to have this as my waking thought. I pray three prayers. I want to encourage you to take these prayers with you. These have been very helpful for me, and I think they will be for you. Here's the first one. My waking prayer is, Lord, I'm a man in desperate need of help today. It's a confession. It's a humbling confession. It's a humbling reminder of the gospel. I'm a man in desperate need of help today. Second prayer. I pray that in your grace, you would send your helpers my way. Lord, please provide the help for me that I can't provide for myself. Send your helpers my way. That help could be a passage of scripture. It could be a worship song. It could be another believer. It could be a passage in a book. Lord, send your helpers my way. I need help. Third prayer. This one's very important. And oh, Lord... Please grant me the humility to receive the help when it comes. Lord, I'm a man in desperate need of help. I pray that you would send your helpers my way. And, oh, Lord, grant me the humility to receive the help when it comes. I believe there are men in this room that the praying of those prayers every morning could could itself change your life. Pray those prayers. Now that's the warning. It's this 
the scary warning of falling away where uh, I've been successful in, in acts and arguments of self-atonement. I've been successful in arguing for my own independence righteousness. I've been successful in swindling myself. I've been successful in naming sin as less than sin. And because of that, I've ended up with a hard heart. I want to be honest with you. I, I fear that there are men in this room, you can be nasty with your wife, and the problem is not just that you're nasty with your wife, it doesn't bother you anymore. You can say the meanest things, it doesn't bother you anymore. You can yank a child, one of your children, down the hallway and shove them against a wall and yell at them, and you actually think that you're doing Christian parenting doesn't bother you anymore. There are probably men here who can look at a website you shouldn't be looking at on Saturday night and go to church on Sunday morning and sing of God's love and faithfulness and the contrast doesn't bother you anymore. Maybe you're spending money that you don't actually have on things you don't actually need because you find more joy in your man toys than you find in a relationship with Jesus. It doesn't bother you anymore. There are husbands here. On a Saturday, you would rather spend three hours with your shotgun, your fly rod, your tennis racket, or your golf clubs than you would with your wife. She's longing for your companionship. It doesn't bother you anymore. Because the pattern that is described in, in Hebrews 3 is operating in your life. I would ask you this morning, is this warning describing you? Now you ought to ask yourself this theological question. You need to put this in your theological pipe and smoke it. Well, if that offends you, I am with conservative Baptists here. Uh, get out this theological gum and chew it. Did that work? I'm Presbyterian. I think that the uh, Reformation was fueled by good tobacco and alcohol, but that's, that's another topic. How is it that a believer can come to a point of a hard heart? How? How? You've got the Holy Spirit inside of you. You've got the Word of God in your hands. 
You've got the precious promises of grace. You've got God active in your life. How can that happen? Well, this passage describes it and actually gives you a theological basis for that. Here it is. But exhort one another or encourage one another every day as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by what? The deceitfulness of sin. Now hear this. Sin by its very nature, is deceitful. Sin blinds. And guess who it blinds first? I have no problem seeing the sin of my wife and children. But I'd be surprised when mine is pointed out. Now think about this. this he's not discussing something that's pre-conversion, is he? He's discussing something post-conversion. Now, here's the theology. If sin blinds, as long as there's sin inside of me, there will be pockets of spiritual blindness. Does that make sense? I would like to think that no one knows me better than I know myself. I would like to think that no one has a more accurate view of me than me, but it's a lie. It's a delusion. I would say to you this morning, give up the thought that no one knows you better than you. Because that thought will isolate you from others. That thought will make you entirely too independent. Know what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, is true of all of us, that there are pockets of spiritual blindness in me. Now here's what this means. Even as a believer, even as one who's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, I have a problem I can't solve. And that problem is ongoing spiritual blindness because as long as sin still lives in me, and it does because it's been progressively eradicated and that process isn't done yet, as long as sin still lives inside of me, there will be pockets of spiritual blindness in me. And those pockets are pockets of moral danger to me. Wow. So I need help. I need help. I need help. Here's what I need. I need instruments of seeing in my life who help me to see things about me that I could not see by myself, so I'm grieved by the presence of sin, so I seek the relief of grace, because grace is only ever exciting to, to a sinner. Listen, you cannot do this alone for this one reason. You do not see yourself with accuracy. You need help. You need people who, who know you well enough, who have been invited into your life, who can help you see yourself as you actually are. I am so thankful for my brother Ted. I'm so thankful for those questions. I'm so thankful for the grace of that moment. I was a man in danger. I was stone blind. I need help. Now here's what this means. I'm going to give you a phrase here. Every one of us needs to dwell, live 
an intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. Let me say that again. Intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. Intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. Intentionally intrusive means this. I have invited, because I humbly admit my need, people to intrude into my space. To cross the boundaries of polite, cross the boundaries of weather, sports, and politics to speak into my life. I'm asking them to do it. I'm saying, I need your help. Intrude in on me. Be willing to step over the tension and the embarrassment of those kind of conversations. Get at my heart. I need you to get at my heart. I need you to intrude on my space. Please don't leave me to myself. When's the last time you've had that conversation with another man? Begging him not to leave you to yourself. How about saying to your best friend, you know me, you know I'm a danger to me, help me. I'm a danger to me, help me, help me. Imagine what would happen in the male Christian community if we started doing that with one another. Imagine the revival that would take place if we started doing that with one another. You see, God hasn't left you to Himself. God, in the glory of His grace, has provided this thing called the body of Christ so that there's help available. That's grace. Intention and truths of Christ-centered, grace-driven. Listen, this kind of exhorting one another daily, encouraging one another daily, it's not beating people over the head with the law. Because it's all you give me is the law, I'm going to hide. I need to see Jesus. I need you to say to me, Paul, don't be afraid of admitting things because there's nothing that could ever be known about you. There's nothing that could ever be exposed about you that hasn't been covered by the blood of Jesus. You can be known. It's okay. It's all been covered. That's what I need to hear. You need to tell me that again and again because I get afraid. I think, what if they knew this about me? What if I admitted this? And it's that fear of man that locks us into silence. And what the gospel does, it welcomes us to honest community. We should be the most honest community on earth because we know that there's no dark thing possible to exist in us that has been fully covered by the blood of Jesus. We're free. And so so it's, it's right for you to point out that I've fallen short of God's boundaries, but please don't leave me there. Because if you leave me there, I'm not talking to you anymore. Help me to understand the mercy and grace 
and unshakable forgiveness of Jesus let me know that, that no matter how dark what I'm about to admit is, He will not turn His back on me because my rejection has been taken by Him. Listen. I believe Christian fellowship has been harmed by the fact that we're much better at giving one another law than we are giving one another grace. And yes, I need to hear that I've fallen short of God's glory. But I need to be told that on my darkest, worst, most foolish, rebellious day, I'm I'm loved as fully as I was on my most brilliant day. I got to know that. I got to know that or I'm not opening up. Now, I think... that it's only self-righteous people who get joy out of hammering people with the law. Because if you have a tender heart, the law indicts you too. It's not so much fun. Intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven. Now hear this last phrase. Redemptive community. Here's what this means. I stop owning my relationships as containers for my happiness. I stop treating, owning, holding my relationships as if they were nothing more than containers for my happiness. So I hang around with people that I'm comfortable with. We do things that we're comfortable with. We only have conversations that we're comfortable with. What we do is we live internally casual relationships. I think much of what uh, we call Christian fellowship isn't. It, It doesn't reach any higher level any deeper level than what you would have at the local pub. We ought to just call it publishship. We're going to gather together on Saturday for publishship. You don't have to worry. No fellowship will take place. Don't be afraid. Because it's just, it's just terminally casual relationships. We have these terminally casual conversations. Sometimes our, our, our fellowship, we're still mobile. We don't even slow down. We, we walk by a person. How was your week? Oh, fine. How was your week? Fine. Uh, the Lord, the problems were many, but the Lord was faithful. Platitude in this Christian baloney. Because what you really want is you, you, your highest value is personally comfortable relationships. That's, that's meism. That's me in the center of the world. That's shrinking life down to my wants, my needs, my feelings. Rather than realizing that by God's grace, He is redeeming our relationships so those relationships are not just containers for our happiness. Those relationships are workroom are a workroom for His redemption. Isn't that amazing? 
Isn't that amazing that God can work redemption through two unfinished instruments? That's a miracle. You know this. A lot of you guys are good with your hands. Two dull instruments don't make a sharp instrument ever. Two dull instruments just double the frustration. Right? And so it's a miracle of grace that God could ever believe that Ted Tripp and Paul Tripp riding in a car could ever result in glorious redemptive rescue. But God can do that. And so I begin to have a higher agenda, a higher value for my relationships. Not so that they would just be a container for my happiness. So I want to hang around with all the guys who like to hunt or like to fish or like to golf or have the sense enough to carry my politics or are at the same life space, space as I am. I mean, that, that's just you owning your relationships. None of those things are wrong in themselves. But they must not be the end of your relationships. You begin to have a higher purpose. You want to be in communion with people who will provide this intentional community that you desperately need because you know you have a problem you can't solve yourself. It's spiritual blindness. You're blind to you. And you can't, you can't liberate yourself from your own blindness. That's what this passage is about. It is about the essential, sanctifying ministry of the body of Christ. Essential, sanctifying ministry of the body of Christ. Now I would ask you this morning, Who's providing that for you? You see, it's all of grace. By grace, you've been given new life. By grace, you've been given a heart susceptible to conviction. By grace, you have been guaranteed blanket eternal forgiveness. By grace, you are free to be known without fear because it's all been covered by the blood of Jesus. By grace, help has been provided in the ministry of the body of Christ. Endurance is living in light of that grace. And a significant piece of living in light of that grace is opening up myself to the intrusive ministry of the body of Christ because I have a problem I can't solve. It's my own spiritual blindness. And celebrating the fact that God hasn't left me to myself. He hasn't left me alone. He has surrounded me in His grace by resources of help. There exists Today, in the church of Jesus Christ still, a shocking individualism. Shocking amounts of people who live in relatively good churches, but who live for decades unknown. 
Marriages suffer because nobody knows the struggle of that marriage. Nobody knows. Listen, no marriage is ever meant to live in isolation. Every marriage needs the outside ministry of the body of Christ. Listen, Luella was working with me, but I needed Ted. I needed the body of Christ to rescue our marriage. Men who struggle with private areas of sin, nobody ever knows. Sometimes that stuff only bursts into knowledge in the Christian community when it is now an unmitigated disaster. But it's been existing for years. Endurance is knowing where you are. Endurance is knowing what God is doing. Endurance is knowing who you are. But finally, endurance is a community project. I would ask you, right here, right now, are you living in isolation? Don't be quick to answer. Who knows you? Who really knows you? Who can ask you those questions that it would be hard for you to ask yourself? Who travels with you in your spiritual struggles? Who doesn't need you to tell them? Who can say, how you doing with? I've been praying for you. What's going on with Who can you have those mortifying, embarrassing, uncomfortable conversations with and know that you will be graced and know that you will be loved? Who? Maybe you're struggling because you're trying to live the Christian life in a manner in which it was never designed to be lived. Your Savior is glorious in grace glorious in grace. And because of that glory of grace, He has not left you to yourself. He surrounded you with instruments of seeing. The question is, are you trying to endure on your own? Let's pray. Lord, how thankful I am for Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3 is my story and is my hope. Thank you that in deep, dark blindness you sent an instrument of seeing my way. And in grace radically altered the course of my life. Lord, I, I pray right now, right now, that you'd break down strongholds of fear in the men in this room. Break down the misconceptions that 
lock them in silence. Break down the delusion that no one knows them better than they know themselves. And I pray in grace you would provide that community that is needed. Lord, that every man would would be able to experience that intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community for your glory and for their sake. Lord, after this journey we've taken this, this weekend, it's right for us to say that we love you. But we want to confess that our greatest, fullest joy of our lives is that we've been loved by you. You are a rock and a fortress. You are a sun and shield. You are life and health and peace and truth and forgiveness and reconciliation. We are so thankful that your love has been placed on us. We cry for your courage. We cry for your hope. We cry for your help. O King, O Savior, O Lamb, O Redeemer. In your name, amen. May God richly bless you.